Hello and welcome back to the final episode of the Sabre Political Journal's podcast, The Acts and Politics. As usual, I'm Lucas. And I'm Rory. And today we've got two big stories. First, uh, the biggest story to come out of Stanford probably this whole year, followed up with the election campaign roundup, and then an exciting interview with Cory Booker. So let's just get to it. Yeah, so first off, in what Lucas called the biggest story of the year at Stanford, uh, Brock Turner's conviction and the... Sentencing hearing. and Yeah, the sentencing and the subsequent uh, controversy over that sentencing uh, has blown up in national media, from The Guardian, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, everywhere. Every every national and international media source has covered this. And Brock Turner was a college student in my grade, actually, last year, who was caught raping an unconscious woman um, by two Swedish men. Um, He was caught in the act, and he was summarily convicted uh, a year later. But the judge only sentenced him to six months in county jail, uh, which he'll probably get off early with probation. Yeah, to be clear, this all happened at Stanford. Brock was a Stanford freshman at the time, varsity swimmer, high hopes for the Olympics. Yeah, um, but one of the disturbing things is uh, is that a lot of the media attention has been focused on uh, Brock Turner's accomplishments exactly. as, as a person. and. As one person on Twitter noted, <clears throat> we shouldn't call him a an Olympic swimmer who raped someone. We should call him a rapist who can also swim. Yeah, I mean, um, the headlines don't say, you know, Stanford sexual assailant or Stanford rapist. They say, you know, former varsity swimmer, uh, former, you know, amazing swimmer. Just all these things that sort of turn the focus away from the crime that he did. Yes, and this guy sh- should definitely not be celebrated. Um, what I would definitely recommend reading is the long and emotional letter by the victim to Brock Turner. And, and the judge. No, it's more specifically to the to judge. The judge. Um, it, was, it was the victim's statement, and that was posted by BuzzFeed online, and it's uh, very emotional. And you can also read the father's statement, uh, it testified... Uh, testifying to the character of his son, where he uh, uses some very harsh, very weird terms to characterize his son by saying... Uh, so, you know, 20 minutes of action do not like, define 20-plus years of life. Yeah, um, ca- calling rape action. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really bad. And then uh, that was posted online by Stanford Law Professor Michelle Dauber, who's been an advocate for the victim... Mm-hmm and for uh, sexual assault reform. And then one of Brock's high school friends, Leslie Rasmussen, penned a letter to the judge as well in Brock's defense, sort of blaming the whole outbreak of the controversy on politically correctness, saying this is not what rape is, you know, this is just idiot college students drinking too much, not being aware of their surroundings. Again, it just really goes to show um, how misinformed the debate is around campus rape um, nationwide, and how you know we're still we're still not there as a country in terms of like where we want to be and how we define rape and now, how we deal with it. Now, one of the popular reactions to this controversy has been a petition to recall the judge who gave the lenient sentence to Brock Turner. And that petition has... Right, yeah, there's a lot of those floating around online. The biggest one has around, you know, 680,000 signatures. 
Um, as of today, as Wednesday. Of, yeah. And so, I mean, it's important to know, right, that petition itself can't really do anything. For To recall a judge like that, you'd have to get a physical petition signed by members that actually live in the judge's sort of county in his jurisdiction. Um, and this one online that has 688,000 signatures are signatures from all around the world. So, um, but but it shows it shows the people who are uh, who are outraged by by this. And one of the downsides to that petition, I think, might be the the fact that we're all over might be overlooking the fact that we're promoting uh, more incarceration. And yes, it's awful that uh, in this instance uh, the perpetrator of the crime benefits from both race and yeah, class, class privilege, privilege yeah. but, uh, but by suggesting that the judge should give harsher sentences, we are, in effect, uh, suggesting that all judges give harsh sentences for crimes, because if they don't, they're at risk of being... You know, public uh, outcry, and yeah. that's, you know, one thing that's been so crucial to the survival of our judiciary and the impartiality of it is its removal from sort of uh, democratic accountability and the democratic pressures that come along with that. Um, and sometimes that's necessary, as it is in this case, because um, the sentence was, you know, did not really fit the crime. Six months, the judge said it would, anything more than six months would have a severe impact on Brock, um, you know, grossly um, not taking into account the fact that Brock had a severe impact on his victim. Yes, so. and and I think we can all agree that this one sentence uh, was is, wrong. Yeah, um, but the precedent this sets in terms of public outcry for greater sentences. Yeah. Um, it's not something that I hope will continue for other cases, perhaps um, less controversial cases. Um, and I think maybe some of the outrage that we have right now as a community and as a nationwide community should be focused less on this particular instance and this particular judge and more on the sort of culture. what this says about campus of, rape. And, yeah. Um, because, right, what, what Brock's friend's letter said was, you know, this is not rape. This is not someone kidnapping a girl and then, you know, giving her a drug and then raping her. This is something that happened on a college campus. But that just goes to show that, you know, campus rape, that's what we've been, that's what people have been trying to do is prove to people that campus rape is just as bad as it, Rape that. is rape. Yeah, and, exactly. And I think whether it happens on a college campus or out in the public, yeah. uh, it's, it's still a crime and it's still an awful, heinous crime. And... I think that's about all we've got to say on this. Yeah. I, I would recommend reading the victim's letter and and yeah, all of the other statements. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can find everything online. It's it's quite telling. And moving on to election news, there there are two things. We've got in the Republican uh, side... Yeah, you know, we got Donald Trump saying yet another racist comment, um, commenting on a judge's nationality. He's he said, of Mexican descent, but he's actually you know, born in America. His, he... he he basically did what Paul Ryan calls a textbook definition of racism by saying that Judge Curiel could not perform his job because of his race. Yeah. And which I mean it doesn't doesn't get much more racist than that. You're just it's Yeah. <laughs> and yet the party leaders like Paul Ryan himself who called this a textbook definition of racism uh, are still backing him. It's you know yeah. Paul Ryan said, "Yes, this is racist, but I still support Trump." And Mitch McConnell said, yes, I'd prefer if he didn't say these types of things, but 
I'm I still going to support Trump. Others, however, like Lindsey Graham, who endorsed Trump a few weeks ago after going through a long, circuitous route of endorsements <laughs> for anybody but Trump, uh, has decided that this is the last straw, and he calls this the off-ramp for fellow Republicans who just cannot bring themselves to vote for Trump. He's, he right, says yeah, that that's the kind of attitude you want to see from more Republican leaders. Lindsey Graham, he's a seasoned uh, senator. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a presidential candidate himself, and, and so you want you hope that some more Republican we'll do party same. leaders will fall in line behind Graham's ways. And, and we also hope that uh, party former party leaders like Mitt Romney, the yeah. former presidential candidate, won't jump onto the Trump bandwagon. He hasn't yet, and... And, you know, I'm sure he won't. He has, you know, Romney really has, not that he has no responsibility to the party, but, you know, because he's not an active member of the party in terms of as an elected official, and you could say there's the not same, as much pressure to go along. You could say the same about the Bush family. Yeah, exactly. Um, these former Republican Party leaders who are now removed from office have a very large and excellent opportunity to wholeheartedly denounce Trump and sort of turn the tide against him, hopefully. And it's, t- it's tough for senators like McCain, who you can tell really, really despises and Trump, but he almost has to support him. He has him, to the party or, line. Or he risks being primaried in yeah, exactly. Arizona. Um, but moving on to the Democratic side, uh, we have you know Hillary Rodham Clinton has clinched the Democratic nomination. It's okay. a historic nomination. Right. She's the first... Um, female to be, ever be nominated for a major party's presidential ticket. Yeah, um, and and I think I think the uh, the magnitude of that accomplishment should not be understated. I it's think. been mitigated for sure, and it should not be because um, she's been um, you know it's been a hard campaign, and she's you know she tried two thousand eight, she failed, and now she's back, and you know again this is this is how far we've come in terms of yeah you know, who has access to our politics. And she she clinched the nomination on Monday, according to the Associated Press, um, who surveyed various delegates to assure the people that uh, the math added up. The math she added had, up. Yeah. But regardless, she she won in California and in New Jersey yesterday, and she has she's entirely ensured that she will have yeah. the majority of pledged delegates in the popular vote as well. So. Bernie, who is still in the race and still very bitter about this prolonged race where he doesn't feel like he's been given a fair shot, uh, should be wrapping up his campaign pretty soon. Yeah, we I hope. mean, hopefully that's, it would, there would be really no reason to stick around. I don't see a reason for Hillary to keep paying attention to him. Oh, uh, she definitely won't. The thing is, many are worried that he's going to stay in, as he claims that he will, all the way through the convention and continue to divide the party, but... I think, as we could see from his speech last night, he didn't go on the offensive against Hillary, but instead he went on the offensive against Trump. I think that's... that's the direction we need to start heading in, or yeah. at least the Democratic Party needs to start heading in. Um, and I think that's, I think that's about it, it for yeah. the year. Um, um, so thanks, guys, for listening all year long. Um, we've had a great time doing this. Yep. Um, like We've got one last interview for you, and it's with, it's with Senator Cory Booker, Booker, Stanford alumnus, um, working on a lot of really interesting legislation in the Senate right now, most importantly, a criminal justice reform bill that's on its way to getting passed. So um, take a listen. Yep, see you next year. Hello, Senator Booker. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, too. Well... 
Thank you for joining us for our final podcast. Oh, this is the final podcast? Yes, this is the last one of the year. Oh, the year, not forever. Oh no, just for this academic year. Okay, good. Well, first off today, we want to discuss your new book, titled United. From the very title, it is obvious that one of the themes of the book is unity. Unfortunately, it seems like the country is becoming more and more divided. Political science shows us that, that there is an unprecedented level of partisan polarization in Congress, which has led to much legislative inaction. However, this isn't just a result of politicians not cooperating, but also of voters favoring ideological orthodoxy or purity and disapproving of compromise. Can you tell me a little bit about how you remain hopeful under these circumstances for a future of bipartisanship? Yeah, well, first of all, and forgive me, my voice is going out a little bit, but I'm extraordinarily hopeful for a couple of reasons. One, because in the Senate, I found ways to get things done. We just passed a major toxic chemicals bill today. Uh, the House passed it. The Senate um, has moved on it as well. And it's the result of a massive compromise to deal with the real issue, which is, you know, the, our couches are sprayed with flame retardants, there's chemicals in our rugs, or everywhere around us, but a lot of these chemicals are innocent until proven guilty. In other words, they could be causing the dust that comes up from these uh, items could be causing us lots of diseases or cancers or problems. So I was really excited that, that because of lots of negotiation over the course of almost a year, we've been able to come up with an, an extraordinary bill that moves the ball forward, helps to better protect consumers, and even I was able to get a provision in there um, that puts a massive limitation on testing of chemicals on animals, and hopefully we'll be saving you know, hundreds of thousands of animal lives. So uh, I've seen how compromise can work, but you bring up a bigger point about the partisan nature, nature of the electorate. And, and the one thing I have to say that's remarkable to me, especially talking to Stanford students, is how if we were just participating more, we wouldn't have the politics that we um, that we are lamenting. In other words, millennials in in midterm elections, where our, our whole House of Representatives is elected, millennials are only turning out like at twenty something percent. I mean, imagine if millennials were voting at fifty percent or sixty percent. That could turn most elections in most areas. And, and millennials themselves tend to be more tolerant, more inclusive, more moderate in some ways, um, <clears throat> and more progressive in others. So for me, a lot of the problems we're lamenting have to do with the fact that we are surrendering to cynicism about a system and not realizing that we have the power to do something about it and make a difference. I was going to ask about cynicism a little bit later, but now that you've brought it up, I can ask about it now. Many of the young people that you talk about, including young people at Stanford, are disillusioned with politics and government and don't see it as an effective path to make actual change. Do you have a message to young cynics other than please vote? Because some just don't see the point in even voting. Well, I think cynicism is a spiritually toxic state. It's debilitating to the individual. It undermines their ability to see faint hope in even glaring problems. It is weakening. It is, uh, uh, I think, in fact, I think it's a surrender. I think that cynicism is a refuge for cowards. People will say to themselves, well, I can't make, make, possibly make a difference. Well, I'm just checking out. When the courageous person is a person that, despite the odds, despite the obstacles, knows their country's worth fighting for, knows that, um, um, that this nation uh, um, it, it has an urgency about it, 
Um, and then I've got to engage in the political system because the political system is so consequential. So many decisions are being made every month, every year that have a real effect on the lives of individuals. And so if you're checking out because of cynicism, you're actually contributing to the problem uh, itself. Uh, imagine this. Imagine just in the 1950s when they were fighting for civil rights legislation and you had, a, you had senators and, 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 and governors standing up and saying, we're never going to have segregation over my dead body. It looked so hard. It looked so difficult to do. Civil rights legislation failed time and time again. The longest filibuster in Senate history was Strom Thurmond filibustering the, the Civil Rights Act. Yet people didn't give up under horrible conditions where they were being denied rights, denied equality, uh, where they were facing physical violence. They didn't give up. They never gave in. They never became cynical. They kept fighting. And not only did we get civil rights passed, not only did we get voting rights passed, not only did we get the fair housing legislation passed, um, but we paved the way for now there to be an African-American president and even be the fourth African-American elected senator. I wouldn't be where I am today if the generation of young people before, and my parents' generation, had given in to cynicism. So how dare we, who benefit so much from that persistence, that unyielding faith that they could make a difference, we who drink deeply now from wells of freedom and liberty and opportunity that we didn't dig, now how can we live relatively a more comfortable and more privileged lives? How can we give in to cynicism now? If anything, what this this, uh, this 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 political system needs is people that are willing to double down in the face of the odds and the intractable problems and 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 the broken system that doesn't work in the way that it should and the corruptive forces of big money and lobbyists. They those forces benefit when when people check out. They benefit other cynicism. You know, Elie Wiesel said the opposite of love isn't hate; it's indifference. The opposite of love. Uh, isn't hate, uh, it, it's inaction, uh, it's pacifi- passivity. Um, and so I, I just, I get, I get frustrated when I feel myself seduced by cynicism. I get frustrated when other people uh, 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 just throw up their hands and say they can't possibly make a difference. Alice Walker said it so clearly that the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. Thank you for that thorough answer. Now, moving on to the presidential election, you're a Hillary Clinton surrogate. Are you hopeful that the divisions in the Democratic Party between the Bernie Sanders and the Hillary Clinton camps will be overcome? There's worry that Bernie's supporters, after all the accusations of corruption and calls for revolution against the establishment, may not turn out for Hillary Clinton in the general election. Are you worried that this is tied to cynicism more generally, or that this is a problem at all that we should be concerned about? No. I'm not worried about that too much. I mean, the great thing about our nation, our party, I should say, is we uh, having vibrant um, um, debates and uh, primaries really are good. This is a great contest of ideas within our party. But you don't see Bernie and uh, uh, Hillary demeaning each other or attacking each other in terms of who they are as people. They may be different with ideas, um, but I think at the end of this, the reality is if, if Republicans are elected, if Donald Trump is elected, that could, in my opinion, have disastrous consequences for our nation. 
And for people who are on the left of the political aisle, I think we will unify and try to stop that from happening. Now, speaking of Trump, you write about unity in your book and about how even Democrats and Republicans should strive to see the common humanity and the shared values of compassion and empathy in each other. So what do you think about the future of this type of unity post-2016? Because whether or not Trump is elected president, there are so many people in the country who resonate with his divisiveness and anger towards others. Look, I, 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 I think that, first of all, <clears throat> there have been charismatic, divisive people in the past, from Father Conklin to McCarthy. Um, so I see a lot of Donald Trump's char- charismatic divisiveness, whether it's about Muslim or Mexican-Americans, um, I, I don't see that as something that we can't overcome, that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're a Trump supporter or a Bernie Sanders supporter, that we can't find common ground, um, especially if that's a value we, we bring into the system, which is understanding that in the end, you can't go forward just in a tug-of-war of left to right. You've got to find ways to work with your fellow American. And so... I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to that value, and in every stage of my political career, even if I could write, you know, a dissertation with a person, about a person's disagreements that I have, you know, a dissertation about our disagreements, like I had with, uh, with Chris Christie, for example, I disagree on a broad breadth of issues. We found common ground, and we were able to do some significant things to the benefit of Newark, New Jersey, and, and there are monuments to our working together, whether it's new supermarkets in the neighborhoods or, uh, or, or frankly, um, new job producers like hotels and office towers in our downtown. Okay, so on the topic of some of the things you've done working with people across the aisle, can you speak a little bit about your work with both education reform and criminal justice reform? detailing what it's like to build coalitions with those who you disagree with on other issues and how you try to reconcile to your constituents the sacrifices you have to make to achieve the greater goal. Well, Ed Reform and criminal justice reform, I don't feel like I made sacrifices. I mean, Ed Reform may have been hard, but Newark, New Jersey has amazing data now after from the 10 years before, from the time I was mayor. I mean, if you're an African-American student in Newark, and we're, at, we're a majority African-American city, but black students tend to be in the lower-performing schools and the poorer neighborhoods, your chance of going to a high-performing school went up 300%. We recently were noted as the number one city in America for beat-the-odd schools, which is high poverty, high performance. We're a city that's seen double-digit percentage increases in graduation rates. We've seen um, significant, in fact, in terms of empowering uh, parents, uh, Brookings Institution put us in their top five of schools, of cities that give parents quality, high quality uh, uh, public choices. So I'm proud of the, the diverse coalition that I was able to bring together to help bring about much of that change in Newark, whether it was working with people in New Jersey or out of New Jersey, whether it's bringing together unions and philanthropists and, and state actors and local actors, uh, whether it was bringing together, you know, innovative nonprofits, uh, all of that, the uncommon coalitions in Newark is what helped create very uncommon results. And on criminal justice reform, you know, we haven't had that, that, that bill become law yet, but right now I'm proud that on this issue, I count as among my allies, Newt Gingrich, uh, Grover Norquist, uh, you know, the, the Koch brothers general counsel as a friend, Mark Holden, 
Um, you know, in the Senate, there's people like Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, the chairman of the Judiciary P uh, Committee, Chuck Grassley, uh, Republican from uh, Iowa. Um, I I'm proud of this broad-based coalition, and I think that, that those, that's the ingredients in many ways, ingredients in many ways, the secret sauce for us actually having a eventual victory and helping to begin to unwind uh, this mass incarceration nation in which we live. So, on another topic, one of the big divisions that has come up in this presidential election is the notion of the establishment and the anti-establishment. Do you consider yourself a part of this ambiguous and undefined establishment? And if so, what does that mean to you and how you work to affect change? Look, I, uh, sincerely, I've, I've heard those terms thrown around, and I don't even know how people define them. I've heard, you know, people who who are in Washington, D.C., uh, are United States senators calling themselves <coughs> champions of working against the establishment. You know, I don't know how to defend those. So this is what I know. I'm a guy who's trying to be as authentically myself as possible. I'm the same guy that started out um, back in the late 90s running for a city council seat representing one of the poorer census tracts in our nation. I still live in that census tract. I'm probably one of the senators that goes home to the poorest neighborhoods uh, where I still live, have my friends, my family, and and every day I'm fighting to represent not just those folks in inner city Newark, New Jersey, uh, but represent people all over the state for what I think are issues of justice, fairness, and economic opportunity. And so, I, I don't know, people can label me however they will. Um, I know where my loyalty lies, and I'm trying to, to every day manifest my authentic spirit in fighting for the urgent kind of change this country needs. Got it. Now, moving forward, I think you mentioned earlier that you're the fourth elected black senator, and right now you're one of only two currently in the Senate. Is this identity important to you? And if it is, how does being a black politician affect you? Well, I... I look, I, I, I... All of us come with our unique life paths and, and backgrounds. And it's surprising to me that there's only been four elected African-Americans um, in our country's history and that this is the first time, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that we've had two elected African-Americans serving at the same time. So this, this is a, uh, uh, to me, these are, this is the evolution of our country, that our, our corridors of political power and economic power and, 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 and even, you know, entertainment, that we're starting to just see more and more diversity. Um, we still don't have a, a, a nation in some areas, like the Senate, that reflect the diversity of the country at large, gender diversity or, or racial diversity or even religious diversity. Um, but I'm a guy that believes that, that diversity is a really good thing. It is, a, it is a tremendous strength for our country. And, you know, as far as just my role, look, my loyalty is to my nation and to my state. And, and to the principles and values and ideals of both. <clears throat> and I do believe that one of those values and ideals is this idea of inclusion, is this idea of equal opportunity, is this idea of equal justice under the law. I take those very seriously. We, we pledge allegiance to the flag. We are actually swearing an oath uh, that we will be a nation of liberty and justice, liberty and justice for all. And where that's not right, we should all feel a sense of urgency to do something about that. And so I, I'm a guy that's on a mission to try to make the ideas of our country, the words that we, that we pledge, um, just want to make them true.
and uh, I'm proud to be in the United States Senate and have this privilege, and I, I'm never going to forget what got me here, which isn't just the voters of New Jersey, which obviously is the condition necessary for me being here, uh, but I also know that a lot of struggles from blacks and whites and Latinos and activists, uh, civil rights workers, all, all, so many Americans in generations before afforded me this this. Um, this blessing, and I can't pay it back. I've got to pay it forward through the work that I do. Great, thanks. Well, I alluded to it earlier, but a lot of young people, including Stanford students, don't necessarily see politics or government as the best path to make change, preferring involvement in activism, technology, philanthropy, etc. Can you tell us how you got to where you are now and why you decided to dedicate yourself to a life of public service through government? Well, I didn't want to be a politician or elected leader. My goal was to lead a nonprofit in an inner city community and to be a part of uh, bonding with great individuals in the grassroots to tr transform um, neighborhoods. That was my vision for myself. But I always say that life is about uh, a purpose and not position. Um, I saw that purpose. Um, uh, I was I was really focused in that purpose, rather, and it was people in the Central Ward of Newark, New Jersey, that said to me, hey, to achieve this purpose, we think you could better do it representing us in City Hall. And it was a big life change for me in terms of position, but I was able to stay true to my purpose. And so <clears throat> what I've learned now is that we all need to look at ourselves in the multifaceted ways in which we exist. All of us are in politics. And in fact, the very act of getting disengaged from politics is a profound political action. You pull yourself out of the system. Trust me, bad people are elected when good people don't engage. And and so, if we're to not look, what a privilege it is, uh, uh, in the worst sense of the word, to be able to say, ah, this is not important. I'm just checking out. Um, you are contributing to so much of the stuff that, that probably caused you to check out in the first place. It's the same thing with, with media. All of us are media syndicators. If you have more than 25 people following you on Facebook or Twitter um, or Instagram, you every single day are syndicating media. You are a channel that people tune into. And what is your channel saying? Is it trivialities? Is it snark? Is it cynicism? Or are you broadcasting to your circle of friends and their friends and all the virality that you might get as your stuff is bouncing around there? Are you, are you representing your highest aspirations for yourself and your nation? Are you representing your higher angels? Are you recognizing your power as a media syndicator? Are you recognizing your power as an artist? Are you recognizing your power as a political artist? Well, I've got one last question before you leave, and I know you've been asked many times, but I have to do it. Your name has been mentioned by various media sources as being on Hillary Clinton's short list of potential running mates, and... Many even have high hopes of you being a future leader of the Democratic Party in its highest office. Do you foresee a future where we might have a vice president booker or even a president booker later down the line? Look, right now the focus for me, especially with the New Jersey primary coming up on June 7th, is having Hillary Clinton uh, emerge as the Democratic nominee and winning this election. I'm really not concerning myself with all the swirl and the talk um, however flattering it might be, um, for me right now, I've got a I've got a mission to serve uh, my state as well as a, a commitment to helping Hillary Clinton, and that's really where my energies are, are focused. And I, I've learned that the you know that again, 
one of the worst things you could do is be thinking about future political offices and careers because I think it really takes you out of the moment and you begin to make decisions based upon future aspirations and not on, on current circumstances and urgency. So I'm focused on being a great senator. I feel blessed uh, that I saw four more years on my term and I'm excited about uh, um, serving New Jersey. Well, that's it for our final podcast of the year. Thank you for joining us, Senator Booker. There were no podcasts around when I was at Stanford. Well, there is one now, and we're glad to have you. Thanks for your time. I wish you all the best.